the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety, twists, endings, and all, without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're looking at Alfred Hitchcock's 1958 psychological thriller, Vertigo. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the plot of the film. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen Vertigo, go away, watch it now, then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. Film trailers are often criticised for giving away too much of the plot. Spoilers, you might call them. And the theatrical trailer for Alfred Hitchcock's 1958 classic Vertigo is no different. It promises us... James Stewart, as you've never seen him before. OK, not so far. But then... Kim Novak, playing two amazing roles. Oh, well that's that then. Vertigo is a psychological thriller starring Hollywood legend James Stewart as John Scotty Ferguson as a detective forced into early retirement due to an incident where he develops acrophobia, not a good name for a film, and Vertigo, a much better name for a film. I wake up at night seeing that man fall from the roof and I try to reach out to it and it's just... It wasn't your fault. Scotty soon finds himself reluctantly privately investigating for an old college friend who has concerns for his wife's state of mind. As the investigations go on, unexplainable events occur that intrigues our hero until he finds himself personally involved. I'm not mad, I'm not mad. I don't want to die. There's someone within me and she says I must die. Oh, Scotty, don't let me go. I'm here. I've got you. Over the years, Vertigo has climbed its way into list compilers' favourites, some calling it the greatest film of all time and most putting it in their top ten. However, this wasn't always the case. Although acknowledging Hitchcock's mastery, Variety claimed it was too long and slow, while the Los Angeles Times thought Vertigo was bogged down in a maze of detail. No, I don't think that's necessarily true. Although Bosley Crowther, great name, writing for the New York Times, loved it, suggesting that the secret of the film is so clever, even though it is devilishly far-fetched. <laughs> Vertigo has been restored several times, sometimes controversially, and with the latest restoration making the film available to watch in 4K. So, love or loathe this film, and let's face it, most people seem to love it, we'll be able to pass it on for generations to come. Later in the show, we'll be taking a look at some of Hitchcock's famous cameos in his films and finding out more about the music of longtime Hitchcock collaborator Bernard Herrmann. Now, joining me in the studio are the rest of the no goods and beatniks that make up spoiler. We've two people that I'm willing to bet don't have a better claim to fame than my friend Jody, who I found out this week, and it concerns Elton John. That uh, is Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Hello. 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 Right, so intrigue, intrigue yeah. already, aren't you? Intrigue already. So Elton John uh, played in, in uh, our, our, where we record this in Lincoln uh, recently, and uh, my friend Jodie said to me, she said, you know, Bernie Taupin, I mean, everyone knows, everyone knows, uh, if you come from Lincolnshire, everyone knows yeah. that Bernie Taupin wrote Saturday Night Arrive for Fighting about market raising. And everyone, yeah. know, everyone knows that. That's, you know, I, was, I thought she was going to come out with that. No, actually, it turns out he wrote a song about her uncle's dog. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's called uh, Son of Your Father uh, and uh, the dog was called Van and their family name is Bushel and it starts with the, it starts with the lines and it says this quite a lot through the through the song I'll catch the tram line in the morning with your leave Van Bushel said. There you go. <laughs> wow. So you're not you, you can't beat that. I mean, you know, let no, alone your Oscars no. Rachel. Yeah. You know. What, what are they I to a, to a Van Bushel? My dad Bushel. went to school with Bernie Turpin but that's not, <laughs> that's not as good. It's not, is it? No. Somehow. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, it should be. They weren't they weren't friends or anything. But it's not, <laughs> you're just there. Crikey. Anyway, right. Anyway, oh, oh, we were talking about Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, surely, weren't we? <laughs> right, okay. But you see, the thing is, the thing is, I, I've kind of... I kind of know which way this is going. So, you know, we... we, we but do you? <laughs> so, Rachel, last time we met, you said to me that you knew I'd not seen Vertigo. So you said to me that you were quite envious of me because mm. I was now willing to watch it or willing to watch it. <laughs> actually, that's true, actually, because it mm. did, it, as you know, with anything before 1985, it's a struggle to get me to watch it. Now, what, what, so what, what were you thinking that at that point when you, when you said, said that to me? What's, what's so special about it? I think I just because I have such fond memories of the first time that I watched it and I saw it in Cardiff in a little 
flea pit style cinema and it was a classic film run I'd never seen it I had no preconceptions at all and um, I just loved it so much because I love Jimmy Stewart anyway massive Jimmy Stewart fan he is my ideal man and I went with my boyfriend at the time and he was a massive Kim Novak fan and we just sat there enthralled basically for the whole film the music you know what I'm like with music. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was going to run a sweepstake, but I think every, everyone would have gone for like the first three minutes, wouldn't they? Yeah. Know, we, we wouldn't have got out of well, here. Yeah, this yeah. is the thing. I mean, it starts with a Paramount logo in black and white, which you're not expecting because you know the film's in colour. And it starts, do, 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 and you think, this is something different. And then the Soul Bass credits come up and it's, wow, immediately you're in. And I just think it's so masterful. And I know that when it first came out, it didn't get very good reviews at all. But it's since become, I think, arguably, Andy, you'll know, is it supposed to be his, his most sort of classic film now, his most appreciated film? Most Yeah, well, it, it recently it topped the uh, Sight and Sound poll. Is it, I mean, that Sight and Sound poll of best films is done every 10 years. Mm. And I think the first time they did it back in the 50s, I think, Bicycle Thieves won it. Mm-hmm. And every decade since then, it's been Citizen Kane. And this year was the first year that right. something different won it, which was Vertigo and wow. Citizen Kane. To and you see, it's funny because I, I, I think we all read the same thing on, on, on there about the sight and sound reviews. And when, when I think about sight and sound, I think of... Um, nerdy guys that maybe shop at Mapping about, you know, electronics <laughs> and things like that, rather than films and, and TV. But actually, I mean, that's the, it's, it's like a, uh, that list is a compilation of the, the top critics, isn't it? So yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's, pr- it's probably worth looking I at. I should probably say at this point that I've got a subscription to Science and <laughs> <laughs> Do you shop at Mapping? <laughs> He's I mean, not I, answering. Yeah, <laughs> that I means don't. yes. <laughs> but I am a nerdy guy. I'll admit to that. Yeah, I think we're all quite geeky in here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was disagreeing with this. Uh, right, so Andy, uh, are you as wowed by it as, uh, as Rachel? Uh, I am, yeah. I mean, uh, I can remember the first time I saw it. And to be honest, the first time I watched it, I had a, a strange reaction to it because the the plot of it has been called ridiculous. And obviously there's, there's more to it than the plot. The plot is... It's a little on the ludicrous side, but I think it, it plays by the rules of kind of a, a Pulp Fiction kind of mystery. But then ultimately it winds up that mystery a lot earlier than you'd expect. And then it goes to far more terrifying psychological places. And I remember seeing it, I was quite young and I'd seen a few Hitchcock films and I'd got the idea that they were kind of sort of fun, breezy things. I'd seen like North by Northwest and Rear Window, which are a bit more kind of... There's, there's more comedy in there. And then I saw this and I remember that, that... I mean, we'll get to the ending later, but I remember that portion of the film made me feel really uncomfortable. I mean, I'd seen, I'd seen Jimmy Stewart in other things before, but never like this. Mm. And so the first time I saw it, I came away with it kind of feeling like I had insects crawling on me, <laughs> that kind of... But it was that intriguing that I went back and back. And every time I've been back, and I have been back many times, I've always thought it's a masterpiece. Well, what, OK, what do you think I thought about it? I love asking this question. I love asking this question now. I think you quite liked it. I'm going to say you quite, <laughs> you quite liked it. I'm going to say you had you had some some issues with with certain parts of it, but I think on the whole, <laughs> I'm going to say it. that you found it quite cheesy because actually I watched it with my housemate who loves it too. But it's weird watching it again and trying to watch it as dispassionately as possible. And obviously I'm now 20 years on from when I watched it the first time, and I've seen a lot more films. And I thought, wow, some of this dialogue is really bad. (laughs) (laughs) And some of this acting is really bad. (laughs) And so there were some really cheesy bits. And I thought, okay, if I was coming at this, having had more years of watching films and coming at it as Paul tends to when a film is highly recommended and is very high up in charts. Yeah, you know, you know I don't go for it. Yeah, that. you're like, I'm going to hate this. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was sat there thinking, I think Paul's not going to like it. I loved it. Yes! Yes! <laughs> yes! I, I, God, I'm so pleased. I, mean, I, I loved everything about it. Oh, I do. Fantastic. I go. I go at it from that. Of course, you know the fact is recommended to me first. Let's put that. Anyone who you know, we know I don't take recommendations well. Uh, although I'm perfectly <laughs> Best willing. Best film of all time. Perfectly willing to give them out. Yeah, <laughs> not yeah, a yeah, good yeah. start. Exactly. Point, right? exactly. Um, and it was filmed before 1985, so you know already I'm on the back foot, and I think oh, I put it off, and I put it off. Although it, actually, um, this is normally with spoiler. I do things like a couple of days before because I've such a terrible memory. Uh, but I did this about a week or so ago, and uh, yeah, it's 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 still with me. I've been Yay. thinking about it for a while, and <laughs> I, I don't know the acting and stuff like that. I mean, I thought uh, James Stewart was just outstanding. I thought yeah. you know really 
uh, what you want in this role is a likable character, mm. someone to get on side of, and you know, you, straight away you're just on, yeah. on his side, aren't you? Yeah. you know? He's not um, the one I was talking about. Bad acting. No. <laughs> uh, no, but you know, it's funny because I, uh, James, Short, I've not really seen. seen <gasps> You know that. that, that <laughs> oh, Paul, we can introduce you to so many. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, you know, but you're going to recommend recommend recommendation them, and you and uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not going to listen. But unless oh. unless unless we do it for spoiler, of ah, course. Okay. I, even the cover for the you know the poster and the film is just it's outstanding, isn't mm, it? And yeah. The, yeah. And there's there's depths to you know to everything there. Just you mm. know the vertigo swirls and all that kind of thing. It's just it, it's uh, yeah yeah I love it. Well done. Yay. Well done, I'm everybody. So genuinely, really. I, I was totally yeah. hedging my bets, thinking I just. I can't stand it. Who's going to say he hates it? Just the relief. <laughs> is, it, is it your your first Hitchcock film, Paul? Have you seen him before? I, do you know? What I think it is, and I think he scared me uh, as a, mm. as a young person yeah. or a child. You know, he is, is this the guy? This is the guy that used to come on uh, in the front of his films and go hello. Yeah, that's it, yeah? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like, I, if I see that on the TV, I'm going to turn it off. I'm not, <laughs> you know, I, whatever you've got to say, mate. I'm not. I'm not watching that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to watch Euro Trash or something else. <laughs> They're bringing banks. Oh man! Really? Uh, yeah. Yes. Anyway, anyway, I think no, we're not going down no. that avenue, right? So, um, actually, going down a similar avenue. <laughs> let's talk Kim Novak because you, when when I tweeted that I'd watched this film, uh, you tweeted about Rachel and said something about Kim Novak. You were quite mm, interested. Said, to see. Have you fallen in love with Kim Novak? Well, yes, of course. Of course, it's a given, isn't it? It's almost not a question that needs answering, really, because of course you did. Yeah, but I mean, they're, they're, I don't think they got on so well, did they? Her and uh, her and mm. Hitchcock, and uh, years after he sort of said that uh, she was wrong. For the role or anything like that, but he's wrong. He's he is wrong. wrong. Yeah. He is wrong. And, I might, totally. and because of that, I may never watch another film. Because <laughs> well, he said the same about Jimmy Stewart, didn't he? He, mm. he blamed the the failure of uh, the commercial failure of uh, to go on Jimmy Stewart being too old, and he never worked with him again after that. But it's weird. The I don't think the age gap actually shows. I didn't, because, it didn't even register. It, no, to be honest. I mean, I know she's supposed to be twenty six, yeah. but she doesn't come across that way. As even twenty six year olds in nineteen fifty eight were very womanly. And very glamorous and very, you know, mature. And he was, he's kind of goofy. He's, you know, he's, he's not a, a really kind of robust man. He's, he's, he's yeah. lovely. And so I think they kind of met in the middle. And it didn't jar at all for me, the age gap. At all. No, I didn't even think about it. No, me either. Well, during the research for this, I was look, and Kim Novak's an interesting story, isn't it? And now she's an artist now. And a very good artist as well. Have you seen some of her stuff? Fantastic. Um, So much so that I even wrote wrote down (laughs) kimnovakartist.com. You should go, you know, just go and have have, have a wander around. It's really good. But uh, I I think she kind of, she saw what was happening to sort of Hollywood starlets and leading ladies and and sort of said, well, no, I don't want to go down that road. Uh, Let's let's, let's steer this course elsewhere. And I think, you know, when you look at other cases it was perhaps a very sensible decision yeah. mm-hmm. but how about that soundtrack rachel <laughs> <laughs> it, did, it is it is just outstanding this isn't you know just a, a, a case of, of of rachel going over the top with Mm-mm. this it struck out and if it stands yeah. out if a soundtrack stands out to me then uh, you, you know it's something I've, actually, I've, I've downloaded it but i haven't listened to it yet but you it's know. spooky be careful if you listen to it on your own at night mm. when it's quite dark you'll freak yourself out yeah. It is quite spooky. It gets yeah, under your skin. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, he's he's a genius, Bernard Herman. Absolute genius. There's a wonderful YouTube mix with all his supposed best stuff, and it really is just the most amazing two hours that you can spend listening to music. But it, I do think I put down here, music maketh the film, and I think without that soundtrack, it would have been a good film, but it wouldn't have been a great film. Mm. Uh, I think it is it is that that important to well, the film. It puts you in that mindset, doesn't it? Because oh, for me, yeah. it it sort of knocks me off centre. Mm. There's those, those strange moments, like that bit where they're uh, they're looking at the the tree that's been cut down, mm. and then she drifts away, and then yeah. it sort of becomes almost like a sort of faint car alarm yes. sound, and, and that made me feel really strange, mm. and it made that scene far more effective. I mean, if you took the music out of that scene or just put some more generic kind of creepy music in, it wouldn't have half the effect that it does. No. So, I mean, well, plot wise, I mean, let's let's bring in Midge here because Midge is, you know, you. you you meet Midge uh, very early on and you're a little bit unsure of the relationship there, you know, and then you realise, oh, well, they, you know, they're just good friends, maybe a bit romantic uh, at some point in the past. But do you think she's just there as a plot point or? No, I think she's, I think she's really important, actually. I really like the character of Midge. You do need something away from that whole, is it supernatural? Is, it, is this happening? Or look at Kim Novak, oh, he's following her. You need something. You need to come back and go... Whew, right, mm. let's just reevaluate where mm-hmm. we are. Yeah, and um, and she is that person, um, and she's not just a plot point because she's quite rounded. Um, I'd like to know more about her. I'd mm. really like to know more about her because and there's all these 
theories online about is she gay and all these kind of things and is she still in love with him which I think is fairly apparent that she probably is yeah. and the, the pain that she goes through all the time is is it's really tangible I thought it was a beautiful performance really subtle and really beautiful and I think out of the whole thing, I think she's probably the person I felt most sorry for. In a lot of these these films, they have the kind of pal role and it's mm. often like a same-sex role and stuff and it does serve that kind of break in the action to kind of reassess it. But in this case, I think there's, there's a lot more to Midge's character. I think at some point in, in Vertigo, every character is a little bit creepy and he, that even extends to Midge for me because mm. she there's a sort of... Uh, a counterpoint to the obsession that we see later, the like the major obsession that that Jimmy Stewart's character goes through with Midge, she she's obviously interested in, him, but then this scene where she she essentially tries to paint herself into his affections, mm. and it, it completely backfires, and you can see the devastation mm. that that wreaks on her. I mean, until until that scene, Midge for me kind of centered it a bit more. And as as things were getting a bit spooky or a bit strange, you come back and you go, "Oh, good, here's Midge. I can relax mm. a little more." Then yeah. that happens, and you know, there's no. Mm. It's like there's nowhere in the, this world you can go for a bit of respite. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it doesn't settle you more when you realise that there's something going on with Midget's a little bit darker. Yeah. Because she thought that was funny. And of course it's not funny. And um, and she's just, you know, she grabs her hair, stupid. And you think, wow, there's some really deep emotions going on here, some really deep passions. And um, yeah, so all of a sudden your nice, stable, sane character is not quite so stable and sane as you first imagined. Do you think she she was was doing it just as like a, a joke? Or do you think, because to me, she I think she sees that kind of growing obsession in him even at that point because mm. when when they talk in the car and she says she finds out about the Carlotta Valdez picture and then she says I'm going to go and have a look at that picture mm. I think she she sees that growing kind of obsession yeah. in him and so she that's why she puts her face in there because she wants to assume that role of, of the object of his obsession yeah possibly see I thought there was an element of kind of trying to snap him out of it yeah, yeah this maybe, is so yeah. ridiculous you know what are you doing it could be anybody. It could be my face up there. You know, you're just you're obsessing about nothing. Think about what you're doing. But yeah, I think there's also an element deep down where she's thinking, why can't that be me that you're obsessing well, about? Well, it proves what an interesting character she Absolutely. is. Absolutely, what you know, a, a good performance it is yeah. that that she hits all these points yeah. of possibility. But. Absolutely, mm. and then it's subtle that you know a plum like me can think that it's just a plum. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean other characters in there as well that we get introduced to earlier on, and uh, Gavin, Gavin El is Elster, isn't it? And I kept Elster. thinking of. Gavin Gavin, um, uh, the guy off of um, BBC News 24. Gavin Esler. Yeah, yeah. That's really close. But he's introduced, and do you think he looks just a little bit too much like a villain? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he's the one that is not a very good actor. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) For me, he kind of, oh, careful, he really almost breaks it. But his big bits at the beginning anyway, while they're still talking and establishing important plot points and what's going to happen. So he doesn't need to be a brilliant actor. But, um, yeah, he looks weaselly, doesn't he? Yeah. Like, oh, come yeah. on. <laughs> He's clearly up to no good. Yeah. <laughs> he is the, the owner wrong. of the haunted amusement park from Scooby-Doo, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he really is. It's, it's true. Something you mentioned earlier, Rachel, in, in, in you know a lot of the variations of what happens in the film is the following. Hmm. And uh, the, there's a shot in there, and it's, it's not just me that thinks this. Probably some other people too, but I definitely know Martin Scorsese because I saw him talking about it on that there internet. Uh, <laughs> and he talks about the shot just before... Madeline uh, is is about to jump into in, into the sea. There's a there's a, there's a film and is it you notice it you notice the camera position because of the way the cars are following and both and mm-hmm. both cars are perfectly in line with with the thing. And Martin Scorsese to you know he, he talks about this, but I thought of it as well. I'm not saying I thought of it first, <laughs> but he but what I'm saying is he agrees with me on this, right? Oh, not, okay. not just the fact that I've seen him talk about it on the internet, and I'm saying I actually wrote it down when I was there watching the film. Just we thinking, believe you. How, how, you know, just what a well, so I mean, is that is that Hitchcock's direction? Is this you know, if I, if I go exploring more Hitchcock, is this what I can expect to find more of that of that, of that kind of class? Oh yeah, well yeah, well he's I mean he's undoubtedly for me he's the greatest director out there. I mean, since we started doing what? spoiler, hang on, really? <laughs> you're, not, saying, you're, you're not in I'm, your head, Rachel. I'm, what? I'm not saying he's my favourite, but I can see where Andy's coming from. It, it might sound like a bold statement, but if you start watching these films, you'll see the amount of amazing films there are. Even sort of like sort of the, the lesser known ones or sort of the weaker ones. There's always this, these sort of virtuoso moments. I mean, there's a an amazing film. Uh, called Young and Innocent from very early in uh, in his catalogue. And that has this amazing sort of panning shot where, 
I won't I won't give it away because obviously this isn't the young and innocent <laughs> podcast. But um, but there's a there's a key detail which is is a very small thing in a very large room, and there's this amazing tracking shot from one side of the room to the other, which goes all the way across the room, and just hones in on this one really small detail, which just gives you that piece of the jigsaw. And that's the sort of the sort of tricks that Hitchcock put in there. I mean, he he always worked with really good scripts, but he had the, these amazing sort of uh, visual. I mean, if you watch documentaries on on Vertigo, you can see like the the drawings he did for like the storyboards and things are amazing. What he had in his head for it already. So uh, uh, even though it sounds like an audacious statement to say anyone is the number one director, I think uh, if you go on the internet, most people would agree. It's usually between Hitchcock or Stanley Kubrick that it, it comes, and they're very different directors, but both brilliant. Okay, who directed Scorner Rock? <laughs> Richard Linklater, who's also a brilliant he's director. He's brilliant. We love Richard yeah, Linklater. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely my, brilliant. I've just decided he's my number one. <laughs> now, later, Rachel will be looking at the work of composer Bernard Herrmann, who provided the score for Vertigo and many other Hitchcock movies. And Andy's been seeking out some of Hitchcock's infamous cameos. That's all after this short break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you'd like to help us make more and help us keep supplied with coffee and cake, you can do so by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Alternatively, if you're planning on buying anything from Amazon, you can do that via the links on our website and we get a few pennies each time. That's spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock by Donald Spoto. You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook. Just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and click on the Audible trial ad on the left-hand side. We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will keep our producer Johnny supplied with copies of his beloved Top Gear magazine. Now, back to the show. What's this doohickey? So welcome back. You're listening to Spoiler and we're discussing the 1958 Alfred Hitchcock classic of Vertigo. Uh, Now, one of the most distinctive features of many Hitchcock movies is the soundtrack. From the melodic love theme of Vertigo to the screaming strings of Psycho, the man responsible for these memorable scores was Bernard Herrmann. And Rachel has been finding out more about this underappreciated composer. I'm a coward when it comes to any kind of thriller. My emotional availability is renowned within the spoiler team and has meant me avoiding a whole genre of film all my life. However, I can say that almost without exception, I can watch anything as long as it's on mute. Music and sound effects are so intrinsic to my sense of fear and discomfort that without them, I'm almost untouchable. I was a long time before I approached Alfred Hitchcock films, largely because of one piece of music, the scoring for the shower scene in Psycho. those screeching strings that sound simultaneously like the strikes of a blade and the screams of the victim, utterly chilling and still raise the hairs on the back of my neck. Even without the visuals, I can feel my saliva drying up and my shoulders starting to hunch up round my ears. The genius of that all-strings score was Bernard Herrmann, who collaborated with Hitchcock on the scores of some of Alfred's finest films, including Vertigo, The Birds and North by Northwest. While never wanting to take anything away from Hitchcock's mastery of storytelling, I genuinely feel that these films would lose a lot of their power without Herrmann's tremendous scores. I defy you to watch that shower scene in Psycho on mute and still feel any kind of fear. The score for Vertigo has to be my all-time favourite of Herman's collaborations with Hitchcock. In fact, my favourite of any of his scores. I tried to listen to the opening title sequence music late last night and gave myself the heebie-jeebies. That was just the music, no visuals, just the eerie string cycling round before being interrupted by the horn section blasting a couple of ominous notes and a sudden jump in volume. I felt like it was entirely possible some madman was waiting in the shadows of my house ready to choke the life out of me. Sensitive disposition doesn't quite cover it with me, does it? 
That cyclical string section repeats throughout the piece, sometimes changing tempo to make you feel more and more disquieted, while all the time the horns continue to emit heart-stopping reminders that something dramatic is going to happen. Genius. And that's just the opening theme. The scene d'amour, or love theme of Vertigo, holds to the pattern of repetition used in the opening theme, but now the strings are sweeping, sweet and melancholic. The piece climbs higher and higher, growing ever more dramatic and almost epic in scope as it reaches its climax. Herman intended the piece to homage Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, another story about love and obsession, and it does so beautifully. Although originally written for film, Scene d'Amour is a stunning piece of music in its own right, deeply emotive and transcendent. This piece is so powerful that it is regularly broken out of the confines of its vertigo context and has been used many times in other places. Most famously, and somewhat controversially, it was used in part of Oscar-winning silent film The Artist. Ludovic Borch, who scored The Artist, won the Oscar that year, but there were many who believed that at least part of that Oscar really belongs to Bernard Herrmann. His love theme was used in such a dramatic part of the film and was so integral to it that the Oscar could have been won on that alone. The irony is that Herrmann only won one Oscar, and crazily enough, it wasn't for Vertigo. He wasn't even nominated for that. That year, the Oscar went to André Previn for Gigi, which also won Best Picture. I know, doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? The Psycho score, also heralded as an all-time classic now, didn't receive a nomination either. That year, it went to the well-known classic Song Without End. No, I hadn't heard of it either. Bernard Herrmann's work continues to be used in films and TV to this day. Twisted Nerve was used to great effect in Kill Bill 1, as eerie and creepy as ever, I'm sure he'd approve. And the scene d'amour appeared in A Single Man, and most recently, Me and Earl and The Dying Girl. But much as I love to hear his work, I believe that Herrmann's music sounds best in the context he wrote it for. Every note, every beat is intended for that scene, that story and that emotion. To couple it with anything else just makes it at best a lucky coincidence, and at worst, a band-aid for a crappy film. Still, if Daryl Hannah's scene in Kill Bill can bring just one person to the music of Herman, I can never be too sorry. Bernard is one of the greatest composers of film music ever, and he deserves a massive following, even if he does scare the pants off me. Okay, very good. Well, thanks, Rachel. And uh, I think, well, we've covered we've covered the score. So we're not going to talk any more about the score. No more <laughs> score talking uh, aloud, apart from maybe at the end. Uh, <laughs> uh, right, okay, so now let's pick this apart and I'm going to tell you everything that's wrong with it. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, I, just, I mean, I suppose I'm hitting a bit back on what you brought up, I think, earlier, Rachel, about... Did, people really fall in love so quickly back in 1958 what, I mean alright well I suppose it's Kim Novak but I, you know just really you just said it it's Kim Novak all right. and it's like she's so sensationally beautiful and captivating she's got that mystery and she's glamorous and she's she's just a bit ethereal isn't she and I, I think that's what got him I don't and I don't think is it love when you behave like that. Well, let's talk about behaviour because when, after she came out of the, the river, not the river, it's the sea, isn't it there? Yeah. He took her, he didn't take her to the hospital. He took her back to her place and undressed her and put her in bed. <laughs> and then he dressed himself as Valdunican. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did, yeah. Which is wrong on so many yeah. <laughs> so which is which, which here is the biggest crime? So I, that's, that's peculiar behaviour, mm. isn't it? No, definitely. There, there's lots of creepiness in this that, and I think, that is why you said about ants crawling over yeah. your skin. And yeah, I debate the whole falling in love thing. I don't think it was love at all. I mean, he, he saw her. He wasn't going to take the case. And then he saw her. It was just a look. It was just an image of somebody. You can't fall in love with an image of somebody. And um, he, she was a wife of someone else. And on the forums, my goodness, some of the people <laughs> get very upset about the fact that he's dallying with a married woman. And that's his friend as well. And so there's so many things about it that's a bit dodgy. That I think really he just let himself get caught up in the, in the mystery and the, the romance of the mystery and the, and the myth of what's going on. And, but I, I, I really debate that it was anything approaching what's really love. 
I mean, Andy, you're in massive love with your lovely wife. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's the way you talk about your wife and the way Jimmy Stewart behaves is so at odds with each other. No, it's ridiculous, so. isn't it? But, I mean, if you go back to all these these old films, people fall in love ridiculously quickly. Yeah, and I think there's an element of... It did work a bit differently in those days, didn't it? I mean, people used to... You'd have your wild teenage years in, like, a year when you were 16, and then you'd probably be married and settled down the next year. And so people were very... Trying to push you into things like that, weren't they? But, I mean, it's it's a, in, in these films, it's not... That's not what's being portrayed. They are going for this kind of very over-the-top thing. And there are certain films like, for instance, A Matter of Life or Death, which is one of the greatest films ever made. We should totally do that. Hang on, I thought this was... <laughs> it's one of yeah um, but uh, in in that at the beginning of that I mean two people fall in love over a radio broadcast in an aeroplane and the, the, the whole film is hung on on you b- believing that and I think it's it's just one of those it's one of those things in old films that you just have to sort of get past it's very particularly if you hold love in very high regard, like I'm sure we all do on this table, it's it's quite hard to, to get past. But as you were saying, Rachel, I think sort of perceptions of love and things are very important in this film. And there is a, a line between love and obsession, which is is very blurred in this mm, film. Yeah. Uh, and that's, in a way, it's, it's almost like he, he wants to possess her, doesn't he? He's, he's, it's not entirely that he's in love with her, it's that he wants to... There's an element of protection as well, so mm. there's nice elements to it, but I think there is an element of possession which becomes a lot clearer later on in the yeah. film. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we'll, get, we'll get to that now, because... It's sort of following the pin, one of the well, the pivotal scene of the uh, uh, of of the film, really, when uh, Madeline uh, jumps from the bell tower, um, or probably not Madeline, <laughs> um, and um, so then obviously then Scotty gives the evidence and, and he sort of spirals into despair, <laughs> and it's, it's good because you start seeing him looking at all the women. Oh no, that's not her. Oh no, that's not her. But then when that door opens, that hotel door opens, and uh, he's introduced to Judy, and uh, I was questioning it. I didn't. I didn't really. Think I don't know because I've not seen it before. I mean, you know, you two have had years on this now, so you obviously know it. But I don't know. Can you think back to your first time and think were you any were you in any doubt or were you just like no, that's obviously her. Oh no, I was in doubt. I didn't think it was her. Exactly. Yeah, um, it was so when, well done. It's not like Superman. This is it? No, just no. a pair of glasses. This is like you know they've done mm. a very good job. Oh yeah, completely. And I think the fact she doesn't react when she opens the door, it's not like she goes. <gasps> Mm, you know, and sort yeah. of backs off and goes, oh, my God, how did you find me? Or whatever. <laughs> no reaction whatsoever. I mean, I can only assume that she knew that he was following her. I think that's kind of implied in some of the dialogue. Mm-hmm. You've been following me, blah, blah, blah. So I think she's ready, sort of. Mm-hmm. But there's no reaction from her at all. So I think, I do remember when I first saw it thinking, oh, this is really weird how she really looks like her. And I was a bit of a shame that they've got the same actress, but... <laughs> so, you know, I, I actually remember thinking that. And it's weird for them to do the revelation so early on. Mm, I was coming to that, so, yeah, coming yeah. to that bit. Yeah, just because I, 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 I must admit, I thought that they, they perhaps did give it away a bit too soon. I don't know, but then it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like it, I like it mm, like that. Can you so remember what we, we talked at the beginning of the series about Moon and getting that, getting mm. that twist out yeah. of the way? Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it was it was like that because for me, the fascination of the last half hour isn't the mystery anymore. And and in a way, that that letter writing scene where she she tells basically tells the audience exactly what's happened, it it ends the sort of the pulpy side of things and the mystery, and it it ties it off. And that that is kind of the ludicrous element of it. I mean, if you start unpicking that, it's highly unlikely that <laughs> they went through this elaborate plot. But it, it kind of it ties a bow on that. It puts it to one side, and it goes now. And we're going to focus on on Jimmy Stewart's mental mm-hmm. state and this relationship between them. So, I for me, that's when it it shifts from a, a really good film to a great film. Mm-hmm. Is that that last stretch? At no, the end. I totally agree. I th- and I think, God, that the pain that Judy's character goes through, because if you didn't know that she was actually Madeline before and she's actually being herself now, that yearning for him to love her as she is, and that, that why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And because she knows what why he's doing it. But, oh, and the turmoil. But if you were still going... Oh, why is she putting up with this? You know, and uh, who is she? And uh, that'll just totally take away all that inner kind of in-depth stuff that you're getting yeah. from it. So yeah, I agree. And as you say, Paul, it's important that you you've got Jimmy Stewart and you're on his side from the beginning. But as you got into that last half hour, did you start to lose sympathy for him at all, or did you start to feel a bit kind of? I was still with him, and I was a little bit unsure as to how much he really knew as well. Yeah, uh, and this is a, the, the layers of this film are brilliant because during that period of time where he's he's sort of obsessively trying to dress her as, as Judy, then 
I, I, I thought, well, he must know. He must know. But there was, it wasn't until he saw the necklace that, 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 that it all fell into place for him. But at that point, I thought he was, just, at some points, I thought he was just playing along with it. Yeah. I don't think he knew. I think he was so far into his obsession, into his depression and all the, everything else that had been going on. I think he probably even recognised in himself, I'm probably just projecting, you know, but why not? Because mm. she's letting me do it. Yeah. And um, and she was so far removed, you know, personality-wise and her gesticulations and her manner and her voice was so completely different to Madeline that I think he could possibly, even if he did have an inkling, he could certainly fool himself that it wasn't her. Mm. To, so, so that would make him feel slightly better about doing what he was doing. But no, I don't think he had an inkling really until that moment. And then it was like, I think that was like a sledgehammer, wasn't it, really? Yeah. I think that was like, oh, my God. Mm. So then, well, let me fire that question back at you then, Andy. Did you did you start to lose, you know, your you know, being on his side? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the, what he turns into, for me, turns into a bit of a... I mean, we know he's had a mental breakdown, so there's an element of sympathy there. But how pushy he is and how... I mean, there is one moment, I think, where she says she can't take it anymore and he says you can leave you can walk away and she doesn't uh, but in that that whole stretch from from when he, he takes to the clothes shop and he she's saying I like the second one and he's saying no it, we've got to have this and you can see she's upset but it, it's it's all about him at this point and uh, I don't think I ever had that that doubt that he might have known anything I think the way I watched it I always thought he didn't know it but he'd just seen this chance at his happiness so for me it was it was all one-sided. He was he was just thinking of him and, to all intents and purposes, erasing someone's personality mm. and looks and everything completely for his a shot at some kind of semblance of the happiness yeah. that he very briefly found with Madeline. Yeah. Um, okay. So, well, very shortly we'll uh, we'll talk about uh, the very ending of the film and maybe what we thought happened next. Uh, but Hitchcock was perhaps one of the first directors to turn his name into a brand, and nearly forty years on from the release of his final film, he's still more famous than any of his leading actors. Part of this branding was his habit of making cameo appearances in his own movies. Andy has been finding out more. It's often said that the sign of genuine megastardom is when a person is recognisable to an audience in silhouette. Commonly cited examples of this are Charlie Chaplin and Mickey Mouse, perhaps the two most iconic figures of 20th century cinema. For the majority of other celebrities, shadowy anonymity would erase the distinctive features most associated with them, Take away the devilish grin of Jack Nicholson, the piercing eyes of Paul Newman, or the arresting, stony-faced beauty of Greta Garbo, and they become shadows of their former selves. In one unique case, however, there was a celebrity who was arguably even more recognisable in silhouette than in full light. This may sound perversely impossible, but then this was a man who never quite played by the rules, Mr Alfred Hitchcock. By the time Hitchcock's silhouette became an iconic image, he had already appeared in over 25 films, and yet his cumulative screen time amounted to a matter of minutes. This was due to the director's habit of making cameo appearances in his films, almost always in non-speaking, incidental roles. Hitchcock was no actor, and yet his clownish public persona and well-documented playfulness, not to mention his astonishing filmography, made him an international household name. In 1955, he became the regular presenter of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, a terrific series of TV suspense thrillers which were bookended by deadpan comic appearances by the man whose name the show bore. Good evening, and thank you for allowing me to come into your living rooms. The opening credits featured a representative drawing of Hitchcock using a few simple but evocative curved lines into which the real Hitchcock then stepped in silhouetted profile. This image became so familiar with audiences that when Hitchcock's name is mentioned, it is these opening credits, accompanied by his theme tune, Funeral March of a Marionette, which usually spring most readily to mind. While he may have been more familiar in shady profile, audiences often went to Hitchcock films with eyes peeled, ready to spot the director emerging from the shadows for a couple of seconds on the silver screen. Hitchcock's cameos became a game for his fans, so much so that he began to make his appearances earlier and earlier in the films in order to ensure the viewer's mind was on the plot and not on the director's inevitable arrival. As a result, 27 of his 39 cameos occur within the first half hour of the film. As time went on, Hitchcock also began to make himself more apparent to the audience. In his earliest appearances, he is usually an inconspicuous member of a crowd, identifiable only by his prominent girth and distinctive hangdog expression. 
As his cameos mounted up, however, patterns began to emerge, such as the tendency for Hitchcock to be carrying musical instruments. Sometimes these would be fairly small items, such as violins or trumpets, sometimes heftier objects like a cello, or, in a famous cameo from Strangers on a Train, a double bass, which he hoists awkwardly aboard a steam engine. The double bass moment is an example of a more prominent Hitchcock cameo, as for a few seconds the director and his cumbersome instrument are the only things visible on screen. But Hitchcock made himself even more apparent in other films, such as To Catch a Thief, in which he sits beside leading man Cary Grant on a bus and is regarded with comic suspicion, or Marnie, in which he takes his visibility to the extreme by breaking the fourth wall, glancing momentarily into the camera as the heroine walks past, like a nosy passerby nudging his companion with speculative glee. Hitchcock's appearance in Torn Curtain gets even more self-referential when the film's score momentarily changes to a rendition of his theme tune from Alfred Hitchcock Presents. A musical cue for anyone who didn't spot him sitting in the hotel lobby with an apparently freshly soiled baby on his knee. Hitchcock's most famous cameos are probably the much-parodied image of him walking two dogs in The Birds and his clock-winding apartment dweller in Rear Window, although their fame may be down to little more than the fact that these are two of the most beloved of his many masterpieces. Far more interesting in terms of ingenuity are the moments when Hitchcock had to sidestep a logistical problem in order to insert himself into a scenario. For instance, Dial M for Murder is a tightly scripted insular film which sticks largely to one indoor set and a small cast of characters. Hitchcock's presence in this case would have been disastrously disruptive. He got round this problem in the similarly small-scale rope by opening with a shot out of a window onto a street, through which he could comfortably and inconspicuously stride. But rather than repeat this trick, Hitchcock instead inserts his image into a class reunion photo viewed by the leads. Here you are, with the biggest cigar in the business. Well, that's the first and last reunion I ever went to. What a murderous thug I look. A similar trick was used in Lifeboat, a film that is set entirely aboard a small boat adrift at sea. Hitchcock's sudden appearance here would not only have been disruptive, but also beyond credibility. After all, he could hardly bob past in the background like a giant boy. In this case, Hitchcock makes himself the subject of an advert in a newspaper one of the characters is reading. In typical self-mocking style, the advert is for Reduso Obesity Slayer, and Hitchcock appears as both the before and after model. Sticking out his belly in the first picture in order to make himself look marginally less corpulent in the aftershot. Few directors are publicly visible enough to spend their careers playing a high-profile game of hide-and-seek with their fans, but throughout his five decades in the industry, Hitchcock proved himself as one of the screen's most recognisable stars. Though often only fleetingly passing the camera or even shot from behind, his screen presence was such that he could snatch an audience's attention away from even the most glamorous of leads. Fittingly for a man so famous, Hitchcock bowed out with a final cameo in silhouette only, glimpsed through the door of a registrar of births and deaths in his last film, Family Plot. In a twist that the director himself surely would have appreciated, the location of this cameo became apt when Hitchcock died two years after the film's release. This was not his final screen appearance, however. In Richard Franklin's 1983 sequel, Psycho 2, that famous silhouette can be seen momentarily on a wall seconds before a light is turned on, obliterating it and leaving audiences wondering if their eyes deceive them. It seems somehow fitting that even death could not restrain the jubilant japery of this most impish of cinematic legends. The foregoing has made it obvious to me that we've had quite enough for one evening. Good night. Hey, great stuff. Well done, Andy. And um, well, let's build up now towards the big ending. And um, hey, let's mention the word vertigo. <laughs> how, how far have we been in this without, without mentioning vertigo? Jimmy Stewart's got vertigo, by the way. And uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's quite a fraught. And I, I, I take your point now. Now I'm visualising them climbing the stairs, Andy. And uh, he's, he's pushing Judy up the stairs. And yeah, I, I, I'm taking your point now of, of what you were saying about, you know, you sort of think, well, hang on a minute. He's been a bit... Harsh with that, you know, a bit, a bit overly physical, mm. perhaps, you know. Oh, but she is accomplice to a murder, so <laughs> there is that element as yes, well. But two wrongs don't make a <laughs> yeah. yeah. um, But he's he's in a state of frenzy at that point, yeah. isn't he? You know, yeah. I mean, it really is frenzy, and then it just it does take him a little while to realize. Hang on a minute, look how far I've got up here, um, and this is the thing. This is the shock, the thing that snapped me out of uh, out of out of the vertigo, the thing that happened in the opening scene of the film, um, and that that poor old police guy mm. <laughs> who was trying to save Jimmy Stewart and fell to his death. 
How did Jimmy Snit? Let's go right back to the beginning. Now we're at the end. How did he get? How did he get off that ledge? Oh, that's a big one, isn't it? Yeah, how well, did he get awkwardly off because he's in a corset, isn't he? When we next see him, and he's got a cane, so <laughs> it could be that he <laughs> fell and just managed to land a little bit better than the police. He landed on the police. He landed on the police. Yeah, that's that one. We'll oh, they might have done a sheet, a sheet at the bottom. Yeah, you know? oh, yeah. 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 They, oh, they used to do that in films, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, always. Yeah, little little chaps out with a sheet and yeah. a big circle on it. <laughs> Aim for that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then, uh, so they're, they're, they're all there, they're, they're dicing around the edge there, and then a nun appears. What? You, <laughs> when she first appears, no one thought it was a nun, right? I, I thought it was the bad guy. Yeah, Gavin, you, you Gavin, see Gavin Esler from BBC News 24. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't remember, again, I've seen this film so many times, I can remember watching it years ago with my first girlfriend, and she jumped half a mile in the air when that <laughs> nun came out. Uh, Obviously, not quite as badly as uh, Judy no, does, but... <laughs> but she was very calm, wasn't she? The nun, when after you know, if I see someone jump off a ledge, I think I'm going to be freaking out, man. Yeah, like, oh my god, yeah. but no, she was just like, oh dear, ring the bell. <laughs> not, Another not, one's not, gone. Not <laughs> maybe, maybe we should lock that door at the bottom, <laughs> it might stop happening. It is weird though, the way because obviously she's come out of the hatch, isn't she? So she kind of goes, yeah, and just kind of. Sorry, it's difficult to do that on the radio. <laughs> but uh, she kind of just sort of looms out of the floor. Can you remember that that nun at the beginning of uh, the Blues Brothers? Yes. Who moves oh. around without even moving her feet. Yes. Just, uh, it's kind of like that, totally the way was, she emerged, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, I must admit, I was, when I saw Vertigo in the cinema, that was one of the things that freaked me out. Don't like nuns. <laughs> and she just kind of loomed out. And I was like, ah! So, so um, yeah. the sister act like a horror film. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> so the ending, what happened next? What happened? You know, I love to ask this question. Mm. What happened next after the, after the ending? Obviously, uh, she she jumped off. Oh. Uh, did the, she jump the, or did she fall? Oh, oh well, there we go. There's yeah, a question. Been debate, hasn't there? Yeah, big debate. Oh, did, did she simply see the nun and stop, <gasps> fall backwards, and then clean out? Because you're really near the edge. Yeah. Or did she go? I'm never going to get out of this. I'm guilty of murder and fling herself out. Kim Novak says she fell. Really? Mm. I thought she jumped. Andy. Uh, I really don't know. I think it's, uh, I, th- I think it's kind of uh, left hanging oh, there, totally, isn't it? Yeah. And it's uh, and also I think what what happened next. I mean, obviously we're we're left to come up with with our own point of view. But Hitchcock did actually shoot an extra like little tag for the ending. And in in those days there was pressure. In fact, uh, the production code at the time stated that if someone committed a crime, they had to be shown to be punished for it. And Vertigo is one of those films that slipped through where that doesn't happen you don't see uh, Gavin Esler in uh, <laughs> in chains or anything and it's but all for the better for that isn't it it is definitely but Hitchcock was was uh, was told he had to go back and shoot one and there is in existence uh, uh, just a little bit at the end with uh, Jimmy Stewart back with Midge and they're listening to the radio and the radio saying the police are closing in on the mm. I mean it would have it would have made it rubbish mm. it would have so twee, <laughs> it would have absolutely so incredibly destroyed that ending mm. that ending of him looking over that that mm. precipice is is great for me. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we know that uh, early in the film they say this thing about another emotional shock will shock him out of his vertigo. Mm. And is that the thing that finally like puts it to rest? So yeah, as his... he looks over the, the edge, that is literally the end of vertigo. Yes, no, absolutely. He said they're most comfortably, isn't he, just looking over? Yeah. And it's not, yeah. He's it's... almost indifferent to, to the height. Yeah, because we so... know from that, that amazing, those amazing shots that we see mm. where this camera zooms in and out at the same time. Yeah. That yeah. that would instantly happen, and he would, but he he yeah. is he, he has a good look down mm. there, doesn't he? So. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, we're going to get to the scale. A final verdicts on this. Now, you know, anyone who's been listening, <laughs> even <laughs> half listening, uh, are going to know uh, which way this is going to go. But uh, the scale is uh, Vertigo, the nineteen fifty eight classic from Albert Hitchcock, or Vertigo, the two thousand and four U two song that resembles the modern shame of a once great band that used to pay their taxes. <laughs> Which, which are we going for? We're going to go for the film <laughs> or Bono. I, you, you saw Springsteen recently, didn't you? I right, did. Andy, yeah, right, yeah. Andy, there's a video online at the minute of, of Bono with uh, performing um, "Because of the Night" with Springsteen, mm. and he is so out of his depth. <laughs> and this is, you know, a once you two fan. The early days loved him. Anything mm. up to and including "Acting Baby," go with it. After that, forget about it. <laughs> I don't even think we need to ask you. I yeah. really don't think you do either. I, I, I kind of want to say it to be contrary, but no. no. Yeah, no, I, well, you know I how really contrary can. I can be. I mean, I, I go for the sport normally, don't I? But you I'm do. not doing it now. It kind no. of upset that Bono has been mentioned in the same podcast, really. Oh. <laughs> so we're placing Bernard Herman. In, oh, sorry, Bernard Herman, and everything will feel better. 
That's right. I mean, there has been, uh, yeah, it's, it's Bernard. Um, in reference, in re- oh, you should always reference Sheik. Um, right. So, uh, there we go. We've, if, if you mention Sheik in the same podcast after mentioning Bono, uh, it's all cleansed. Every, yeah, everyone's, yeah. We've uh, got a balance. Everyone's fine and groovy. Right, so thanks, <laughs> thanks to everyone for this. Uh, thanks for uh, recommending this. Uh, who recommended this one, by the way? I think we both I did, think, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, I think we, we came to a kind of pub consensus. Yeah, like we have to do a Hitchcock. Which one are we going to do? It's got to be better. Yeah. Okay. Um, so if you're going to recommend one that I'm going to watch, well, I don't know, am I going to watch it? Unless What's our next spoiler Hitchcock going to be then? Because I'm not going to watch Ooh, one without but, doing uh, it for this. Uh, well. For me, Rear Window. Rear Window is, is the yeah. next best, I think. Yeah, or, well, too. actually, I think I might like it even better. Ooh. But I, we can't do it for spoiler now because I've ruined it by saying <laughs> you my certainly opinion. Have. But, and uh, obviously I like it because I mentioned it too. You, you enjoyed G- Jimmy Stewart's performance. Yeah. This is him in a, a sort of lighter role. Yeah, than, it is I would lighter. go to Rear Window, definitely. Yeah, me too. Okay, maybe series seven or eight then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well done everybody. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for joining Through the Glass and uh, we'll leave you, as always, with the genial Andy Goulding. Before you put on vertigo, a warning to the cautious, Hitchcock's use of colour is designed to make us nauseous. Combined with the suspenseful plot and Bernard Herrmann's score, the delicate of stomach may be shaken to the core. It can be overwhelming on a 48-inch screen. That's why the film's called Vertigo. That's French for I go green. You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher with additional music from the Vertigo original soundtrack. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Or you can help us out simply by telling your friends about us, sharing the links to our show, or writing a nice review on iTunes. Next time on Spoiler, we'll be comparing and contrasting both the book and movie adaptation of Room by Emma Donoghue. There's room, then outer space. With all the TV planets. If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk, find us on Twitter or Facebook, or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is a Joe Schmo production. The show is recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. From that great city to the north...